Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Esther chapter 4, the story of a woman who didn't know the power that she had until suddenly she did. Her story makes us think of what it is to have a fate that is tied to the most vulnerable people, arguably a fate we all have. It made us wonder about the breadth of details in a person's life story that prepare them in some way for the biggest challenges they will face. And it made us ask, what is possible once we put aside the primary goal of protecting ourselves? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you today? I am doing, I'm doing good. I'll tell you, I'm in this funny little phase with my older kid who thinks, like, she's always really sad when she has to go to school because this morning she was like, you and mommy get to go to work and do whatever you want. And I have to go to school and do what my teachers tell me. <laughs> this is your wildest dream, isn't it? Yeah. This is what I dreamed for myself as a child. I sit in my office grading papers and planning lessons. And I mean, recording Bible where I'm like, if I could do anything in the world on a, you know, on a like random in the category of morning, work. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. No, no, literally like anything in the world. If I could go... <laughs> <laughs> if I could be on vacation or lying on a beach somewhere, drinking an umbrella drink or anything, climbing a mountain, I would rather be here with you recording Bible Worm. That's lovely. I can't tell whether you're serious, but it's very lovely. <laughs> it's good. No, Bible Worm's a good, I mean, yeah, this, we, we started doing this because we actually like talking about these texts. So Yeah, no, that's actually true. Remember that. Even if it becomes a, a calendar item, it really was born out of just... We want to talk about it anyway, so we might as well record it and see if anyone wants to hear us talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) We should do like a little Bible worm, like just take a Bible worm trip to the beach. Yeah, like anybody who listens to Bible worm, just want to come sit on the beach and talk about the Bible together. We could combine all of the things. It would be amazing. We, yes, we we could do that. I'm kind of more of like a mountains, like woods. I am too, actually. I don't even know why I'm talking about the beach. I don't like the beach. Okay, great. Bible Worm goes to the mountains. Bible Worm goes to the mountains. Let's do it. Put it on the calendar. (laughs) Okay, great. I'm glad we've settled that. Um, Lest our listeners be confused, we are not actually planning a retreat. But, uh, you know, maybe who knows what the future holds? I mean, you never know. Who knows? You never know. It could happen. Instead of going to the mountains, today we are reading from the book of Esther. It's like going to the mountains in that... (laughs) um, in so far as it's nice. That's, that's all I can do. <laughs> yeah. And when I was studying uh, rabbinics a few years ago, uh, there was, do you, you know the Midrashic form is called a peticha or something like that, like an opening. And it's like the whole genre is like, you know, you're talking about verse X, mm-hmm. but you start with verse Y and the sort of like the 
the like what's interesting about it is like how is this person going to get from text It's like an y intellectual game. How X. are you going to get from Yeah, it's like Wordle. Yeah. Logic Wordle. It's exactly right. So you wow. know we're going to end up in Esther, but we started with mountains. And how are we going to get there? I was so excited. <laughs> how are we going to get there? Yeah, we're pretty nice. lame bridge, but you know, um what can I say? We had to get there somehow. We are far far from the land of the biblical texts that we have been in. <laughs> it is true. It is true. We've been Habakkuk from, to Esther is a little bit yeah, of a Yeah, Habakkuk. Move. And before that, you know, like we've been in prophetic texts. What kind of orientation would you offer our readers to have some sense of like the biblical universe that we have dropped into here? I'm not sure, honestly, how to make a logical connection to Habakkuk, uh, but I can introduce... Esther sort of in its own way. And then we can, I mean, I think this is actually a really lovely Advent text. It's kind of interesting. It's one of those texts that, you know, when you look at it and you're like, how are we going to talk about this in the season of Christian season of Advent? It's not immediately obvious, but I think it's a pretty good text. Exactly how it fits into the the world from which we have just come, I do not know. But uh, Esther is a book that is set in the period of the Persian empire. And so after the end of the exile, the Persians become the ruling power in the world. And the story of Esther is the story of a Jewish woman who, by way of not telling anyone that she's Jewish, becomes a part of this contest to marry the Persian king and actually becomes the queen of Persia. And so she has risen to the position as a Jew living in the Persian empire of being the queen of the empire. And so one of the things that the book of Esther seems to be doing is kind of struggling with the question of what does it mean to be Jewish in a world that is dominated by non-Jews and in the book of Esther as, uh, by people, as we will see, who are actively trying to exterminate the Jews is the is the way the book of Esther goes. So not just people who are not your people, but people who are opposed to your people. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a Jew living in that context or an other minoritized person? I, I think we could extrapolate living in that context. How do you conduct yourself? What do you do? How much do you acknowledge about your identity? Like how do you participate in power mm-hmm. structures? So it's a really interesting book that raises all kinds of questions. Seems to have been trying to address Jews living in the period of the Persian empire as to what does it mean to be Jewish in the Persian empire? Yeah. What else would you say about the book of Esther by way of introduction? Well, I want people to know that um, you have written on the book of Esther yeah. in your, your book, the, what is it? The forgotten, the forgotten books of the Bible, forgotten books of the Bible. So if they, if, if people want to learn more about Esther or the other Megillot, we would call them in the Jewish tradition, that's a great resource for them to check out. I think the other things I would want to add about Esther are, are maybe two things. One is um, God is not mentioned that's right. explicitly, at least in this text. You know, the Jewish tradition finds, finds places in the text where they're like, oh, the text is talking about God. <laughs> but... You know, the name Esther itself means hidden, and there's a lot you could say that Esther is hidden in her identity, and God is hidden from our eyes in the story. There's there's sort of a lot of I don't know, things sort of happening in the background. There's like the 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 power yeah. scene in the in the world, and then there's 
and then there's there's this other layer. That's right. It's interesting in the Greek version of Esther, which is the version that's read mm-hmm. in Catholic and Orthodox Christian communities. Mm-hmm. That version is ha- very God different. is every place. It is very text. pious. Yeah. That is a very yeah. yes. That is a very different telling of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It seems like You're people right. sort of missed the presence of God in the Book of Esther, and so they they added some additions to kind of bring it in. But in the Jewish tradition and the Protestant tradition out of which we are reading, um, God isn't mentioned anywhere. It's one of the two biblical books that don't mention God at all. The other one being the Song of Songs, which which sometimes surprises people because we read it as an allegory of God in Israel or God in humanity, but God is actually not in that book anyplace. Yeah. One other thing we could say is that we uh, did a special series on the forgotten books of the Bible a couple of years ago now. And we did record a couple of podcasts on other parts of Esther. We talked about the story of Queen Vashti in Esther 1, and then a little bit about Esther herself looking at chapters 3 and 7. Those are episodes 151 and 152 of Bible Worm, if anybody wants to go back and look at those. But we've never talked about Esther 4, which is what we're talking about today. I want to add one other thing that um, might get me in a little trouble, maybe? I don't know. I I just feel like I I need to put out there that, you know, people have different beliefs about the historical truth claims of the biblical text. Yeah. Even people who are, okay, I'll just say this. Most people I know do not think that this is meant to be read as a story of something that historically happened. They understand this book to be sort of a novella that is working out some stuff. You know, what does it mean to be a Jew who rises to power but is not actually in power? The Jew in the foreign court story, as you were saying before. But we're not going to— you know, whereas in some of these other texts, we tried to see like, which king are they referring to and what might've happened and what was a historical situation? I really read this story as a story. Yeah, I think that's important. And I mean, I'm I'm so much a person who reads the biblical text kind of internal to itself that I sometimes forget <laughs> that there are like questions about historicity, but there is no evidence from anywhere outside the Bible of a Jewish Persian queen, a Jewish queen of Persia. And one would imagine that such a thing would be recorded in the annals of Persia someplace. And so I think it, I absolutely agree with you. It's far more productive to read this as a story of Jewish people working out some questions theologically and sociologically about Mm -hmm. how do we live in this environment than to try to search the history books for some kind of connection. That's really helpful. So our text today is chapter four, verses one through 17 which is all of chapter four. And um, I'm going to be reading from the NJPS. We ready to get started? You know, I was looking at where it starts and just to make the point, I I sort of said this, but the background to this text Mm. is that- Oh yes, please. uh, The Persian king's right-hand man, whose name is uh, Haman, or at least as as I say Mm it, Mm -hmm. has for reasons not entirely clear, but ostensibly because- Uh, Esther's uncle uh, or cousin Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Haman has declared and gotten the king's support that all the Jews in the entire Persian empire should be killed. And so this is what has set in motion all of the actions that take place in chapter four is there's this kind of empire-wide extermination order that is just, the word is just getting out. It's interesting when Haman 
makes this declaration, he uh, casts the die, um, the Purim, to see when it should happen. And it's almost a year between when he makes the decision and when this is going to be carried out. So there's like a long period between, you know, when there's just anxiety about what's going to happen when this order takes place. So chapter four is set kind of in that moment where the word is getting out there among the Jews that this order is out for their extermination. Yeah. Yes. That's that's important. <laughs> important plot important. points. That it's funny important. to just read the, a story in the a chapter in the middle of a story. Yeah. But that is what we're doing. Okay. So I will pick up then with chapter four, verse one, and I'm reading from the NJPS. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went through the city crying out loudly and bitterly until he came in front of the palace gate, for one could not enter the palace gate wearing sackcloth. Also, in every province that the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and everybody lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maidens and eunuchs came and informed her, the queen was greatly agitated. She sent clothing for Mordecai to wear so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he refused. Mm. I'm really trying to sort of inhabit this picture of Mordecai, like trying to put myself into Mordecai's body. Like, what is he feeling? And what can we derive from the description of what he's doing to mm. sort of like, what is that, what is, what's, I mean, okay, he's upset, fine. But I think we can, I think we can do more than he's upset. I mean, I guess what I want to ask is like, these images that he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. I mean, you can work with them individually or all together, but I don't know, how would you translate that either into like modern terms or into emotional states? What What do you think is going on for Mordecai? Yeah, I mean, that's a real, such an interesting question, Amy. And, I, you know, there's a difference here between what Mordecai is doing and what the other Jews in the Persian Empire are doing. Mm. And so it, So everybody seems to be weeping and wearing mourning clothes and wearing ashes. And so the way that I read that is, I mean, there's gone out a decree that you and your family should be killed by your neighbors, really, is what the decree has been. It's not that the army is going to go through the empire and kill people. It's that Persians are meant to kill their Jewish neighbors and so, you know, I just imagine how debilitating that is and how overwhelming that would be to think that this imperial power and like the people who live around you, like they are oriented toward your destruction and there seems to be nothing that you could do. And so the Jews in the province are wearing mourning clothes, sackcloth, they're wearing ashes. They're, I mean, I think they're trying to draw God's attention but there's almost this sense in which they don't know, like they're just completely debilitated by this overwhelming sense of sadness. Mordechai is doing part of that. He's wearing the sackcloth. He's, we he's wearing the ashes, but he's not lying down. He's in the middle mm -hmm. of the city and he's crying out so that anybody who can hear 
he's telling them what is happening. So he's actually drawing attention to the situation. Mm-hmm. So for me, this is an interesting part of Mordecai's character because like, he understands the situation and he's upset about the situation, but he's trying to think, I think he's trying to think like, what can I do? And what he can do is raise a public protest, which is to say this thing that has gone out is horrible. It's unjust. It's unfair. And we need to raise public awareness about it. At least that's how I, I tend to read Mordecai. Mm-hmm. Not just that he's doesn't know, like it's sad, but that, yeah. that he's thinking like, okay, well, the power I've got is public awareness. What do you yeah. do with all of that imagery? Oh, I I love the way you described that, Bobby. And I love especially that you drew out that, like, that sort of extra layer of not only is your people doomed, but you're doomed by your neighbors. Exactly. Who you're now you're going to live next to for the rest of the year. Like, right. it's just such a, it's so messed up. It's so messed up. And And I certainly don't need to say, like, this is still a thing that happens, that somehow these bizarre political situations turn neighbors against each other. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what has what has happened in this story. That's right. And I love the the sort of differentiating how, you know, when you're when you have that kind of overwhelming grief, you can be weighed down by it and just yeah. lay down. You know, this is probably just a detail of the text because tearing one's clothes can Clothing can also be a sign of mourning. It sort of goes along with wearing mm-hmm. sackcloth and ashes. But it has this image to me of like, you know, the the when the feeling in your body is so big that like you can hardly stay in your skin. Like it's oh, like yeah. this like extreme agitation. Like you you can't yeah you can't bear it. And so I I don't know. I just read this level of distress in, in Mordecai that is that is is relatable in some ways. And, and then the fact that he's able to actually funnel that into yeah. making some noise, you know, and it's, it's hard when you're afraid to feel like you should make noise. Cause I would think that yeah. the people now are afraid. And when oh you're afraid, gosh. you want to hide. That's exactly right. But that's not what Mordecai is doing. There's a point you were making about, what it would be like to live with your neighbors knowing that they had this order. And sometimes I try to inhabit the space of like your average Persian Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who has been ordered at the end of this year to kill their Jewish neighbor. It's, it's not necessarily that they have any animosity themselves, but they are also afraid that if they don't carry out the King's order, what's the King going to do to me? And that sort of like the fear that comes from the top and the ways in which these sort of personal biases of powerful people affect everyone, the very fabric of society. But we don't get any insight into those yeah. average Persians until the very end of the book, um, which we won't talk about today. But just to think about that situation. And for Mordecai, I think exactly right, for Mordecai to feel all of that and yet still sort of be out publicly naming the reality is a pretty mm-hmm. remarkable thing for him to do. You know, and I can only imagine that once your typical Persian knew this is what you're going to have to do at the end of the year, even if they felt no animosity whatsoever towards their neighbors, you know, you, you, you hear about these things that happen sometimes to folks in the military who start to dehumanize the people that they know they're going to have to 
brutalized in some yeah. way because of the orders they receive. And you can imagine the transformation that would start to happen in society over the course of that year. Yeah, humans are complex animals. Humans are exceedingly complex. Bobby, why do you think you can't enter the palace wearing yeah. sackcloth? I That detail of the text is so intriguing to me. You know, when you, when you read the book of Esther, King Hasuerus is... I don't even know how you describe the guy. He like he likes the parties. Yeah. He likes the ladies. Yeah. He likes the money. He's not really paying attention to the not, mm-hmm. details. Not that interested in actually governing. And so the way that I have read that is he doesn't want to know if there's anything wrong in his empire because that's not what he cares about. He cares about all the good stuff about being a king. Like I just want to like enjoy my king life. And so if, the way he's done that in my reading is just to insulate himself against all of the pain and despair and sadness and problems of the empire by saying, if you're up, if you're mad about something, if you're upset about something, like you can't come in here. Like, I just don't want to know. Yeah. And so he's, uh, he has intentionally set himself apart from what's actually happening in his empire because he's just not interested. He doesn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Is that how you read that? Yeah, no, I mean, it really, it feels like the palace is insulated from reality, like from from the reality that the palace itself has created. Yeah. Which is, um, again, I guess relatable in some ways is sometimes it feels like the, the leaders in government are really not realizing the effects of the things that they're doing on people. But yeah, yeah that rule is, is so pointed in that it way. Is. Yeah. yeah. So now let's try to imagine Esther. Mm, yeah. So Esther's in the palace. She, this is her uncle, Mordecai, who I think raised her. I think she was an orphan. Right. That's right. And someone comes to get her, and the maidens and eunuchs come and inform her about what her uncle is doing. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine, like, if if someone came to get you and said, like, I need your help because your cousin or dad or whatever is walking the streets and weeping loudly (laughs) and you were on your way out to meet that person. I don't know. What, what do you think would be going through your mind in terms of like, how are you going to approach this person? Yeah. With Esther, it's not entirely clear exactly what she's been told. Mm-hmm. It says the female servants and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not clear at this moment whether she understands the exact situation. What does seem to be the case is, I mean, Esther has risen to her position by not telling anyone mm-hmm. that she's Jewish. Mm-hmm. And as as far as she knows, that is an important thing for her to keep secret. Because mm-hmm. what's going to happen to her? And so the fact that her uncle is out there making a ruckus in the streets and drawing enough attention that people are coming to tell her about it, I think she's afraid. I think mm-hmm. she's worried about what's going to happen to her or her position if people put all the pieces together. I think she is anxious about all of that. There's this moment where it's uh, in the CEB the queen's whole body showed how upset she was. And 
when you first, when I first read that, I was like, oh, she, she's really agitated about this thing that Mordecai is agitated about. But it turns out that's not what's happening. She's, she is embarrassed or worried about the fact that he's drawing so much attention. And so she's like, no, just put on your jeans, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. just go back, like be like, act like normal. Don't draw attention to yourself. So I, yeah, like that, her first instinct, I think is self-preservation and oh my mm-hmm. goodness, my uncle is embarrassing me and I can't afford to be embarrassed mm-hmm. publicly. What do you read? How do you read her? I think, you know, I think that's probably right. I, you've you've noted a couple times and it's true that that she has risen to this position and nobody knows that she's Jewish. I I guess I, I that sounds to me like it has more intentionality about it than I sort of read. Like I sort of read... Esther almost up to this point as like a pawn, like her uncle entered her in a beauty contest. She won, like she just sort of keeps doing the next thing. So I don't know if she was concerned that her being Jewish would have been a problem or not, but certainly her response in this situation is not let's figure out what is causing you to mourn and lament in this way and try to address that problem but let's shut down this expression of pain because it's a problem. (laughs) Like because the expression itself is the problem that she is trying to shut down, at least first and foremost. That's exactly right. Yeah. She is trying to shut down the Mordecai's expression of pain because he's her relative and because Mm -hmm. the King doesn't like expressions of mourning and pain. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. The reason that I think it's intentional, this sort of hiding of the Jewishness, is mm-hmm. chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, the text says, Esther hadn't told anyone her race and family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to. Mm-hmm. And so it has been intentional from Mordecai's perspective mm-hmm. from the very beginning mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. she enters in this contest that she should not say who she is. Mm-hmm. Exactly what Mordecai is concerned is not clear and whether Esther actually shares that concern or not, or whether she's just following instruction, but it's, it's not just happenstance that she hasn't told anyone she's Jewish It is very much intentional. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, that's how I get there thinking like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And I should know better, better than to question anything you say about Esther since you've, you've written so much about her. I think it's just, Precisely the fact that like her uncle entered her in this contest. Her uncle said, don't tell anyone her Jewish. Her uncle, you know, so like Esther's just trying to follow the rules that other people are setting for her up to this point. Yeah, yeah. That's really helpful. That's right. Yeah. So whether she's actually committed to the principle that she needs to withhold her ethnic identity. Whether or not she even understands all the dynamics of that. I mean, yeah, I don't I don't know. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay, anything else you want to add on these first couple of verses? I don't think so. Well, then let's see what happens next. So picking up in verse 5. Thereupon Esther summoned Hathach, one of the eunuchs whom the king had appointed to serve her, and sent him to Mordecai to learn the why and wherefore of it all. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the palace gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and all about the money that Haman had offered to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. 
He also gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Shushan for their destruction. He bade him show it to Esther and inform her and charge her to go to the king and to appeal to him and to plead with him for her people. When Hathach came and delivered Mordecai's message to Esther, Esther told Hathach to take back to Mordecai the following reply. All the king's courtiers and the people of the king's provinces know that if any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there is but one law for him, that he be put to death. Only if the king extends the golden scepter to him may he live. Now I have not been summoned to visit the king for the last 30 days. There's a lot going on in here. There's a lot going on in here. Why do you think Esther sends a eunuch to go talk to Mordecai instead of talking with him herself? That's a really good question that I had not really thought of. I mean, I think in my head, like, she just lives in the royal precinct. Mordecai is not allowed in the royal precinct because of what he's wearing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what option does she really have? Yeah. But, I mean, it kind of makes sense that she could choose to go down there herself. Like, not not bring him in, but she could go down there. I don't know. Like there is a, there is a certain removedness of Esther from the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Seemingly partly by design. I mean, it's interesting that she doesn't even know about this decree that has been made in the Royal precinct about her people. Mordecai who's out in Susa has to send her the decree. Like this little Royal precinct seems so insulated from what's happening in the empire that Esther apparently has no idea what's going on. And so like, it kind of makes sense if you think of it that way, that there's sort of an impermeable boundary or at least perceived so between the like regular folk and the royal precinct that prevents them from having direct contact. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that you drew out the fact that Esther is in the palace and she's never heard of this. Right. And, and, you know, at the end of the story, we, we find out that the king is not really paying a super lot of attention to it either. Like, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. like they, these things are just sort of happening outside this little utopian universe of the palace. Yeah, that's right. I love the details in the text about what Mordecai tells the eunuch. Hey, Thatch. <laughs> I think that's a funny name. Both. I feel like I get the sense that he both is sort of telling all that has happened to him, like sort of, I don't know, processing sounds like such a weird, modern, like navel gazing word, but that's, that's, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's some of that in it. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, he provides the text of the law. Like there's yeah. this very like by the books proof yeah. that this happened and it cannot be ignored and it needs, like there's a, there's a human level of sort of interaction between them. And then there's, you know, the more, I don't know, legalistic yeah. interaction between them. Yeah. You raised so many interesting points there. And I mean, it absolutely is true that what happens in that interaction between Haman, who's made this decree and the king is the king says, I'll take your money. <laughs> you make the decree and seal it with my name. And so it's, mm-hmm. It's true that the king doesn't really know exactly what's going on. And I love that second point that you're making about Mordecai bringing the receipts. He's brought the exact wording of the law and all of these things. Because I think it's like, I mean, there's just so many parallels to contemporary life in my head. 
But this idea that when the leadership lives in this sort of insulated bubble where just whatever is true, like you just say whatever, right? And so in order to convince people who live in that bubble what is happening, you actually have to show the written text which is not always convincing in the modern world, but it was convincing apparently then. So here's the law, here's the order, here's the amount of money. Like I know what happened. And now suddenly Esther understands. I think that's Mm -hmm. such an important detail Mm -hmm. that Mm Mordecai is not just sort of abstractly upset about something, but he's upset in ways that he can demonstrate and support and give evidence for. Yeah, and that he maybe, maybe realizes that It's very easy, like when we hear these, still today and throughout a lot of history, we hear these extreme things happening in the world, and there is definitely a sort of, sometimes helpful, sometimes not, like suspicious response that's like, that can't be happening, you know, like you have got to, you've gotten a little hysterical, and, you know, it can't, it can't be that bad. Yeah. Because I know the king, and he's a nice guy and throws a yeah. good party, and he he doesn't have any problem with the Jews, so yeah. how could this be true? Yeah, but Mordecai is savvy enough to know that he's got he's to bring the proof. I know. I think that's exactly right, and that power of, I don't even know what it is, where people are really want to believe that people are not capable of doing such horrible things. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the biases to to need evidence. And, you know, especially when it comes to genocide, and I'm thinking about the degree to which there are Holocaust deniers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all of the museums and research and like evidence-based stuff that has been created around the Holocaust. to prove that it happened because it is unbelievable. Unthinkable. And so, I mean, but even in the face of all that evidence, as you well know, there are many, many people who still deny the re- the reality of that situation. And so, yeah, so Mordecai seems to understand that at some kind of a gut level and is bringing the evidence that he can that he can offer that this thing really has has taken yeah. place. And then we get Esther's response, yeah. which is not not what I would have hoped for. No, I feel like. Okay, let's try to give her our most empathetic read and then (laughs) least empathetic. No, like most, I don't know, uh, critical read. Because this, yeah, as as I said, like this is not the response that one would hope for. But first, let's empathize with Esther. What do you got? Well, I will say that I love Esther in reading the book as a whole. And one of the things that I think about Esther is that she is a savvy thinker who understands by the end of the book, how to work within the system to make a change. Mm. But I think she did not understand that until this moment. Like Mm. we're reading and sort of in chapter four, the transition where Esther finally is going to understand. And so in this moment, I read her as sort of a naive girl who doesn't Mm -hmm. fully understand the situation that she's in. She doesn't fully understand what people are capable of doing around her. She's frightened for her life. Like just imagine, like that rule that the king has, like if you try to come see me and I don't want to see you, like I'm probably going to kill you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. that is is insanity. Mm -hmm. Even if you're my wife and you come and I haven't called you, like, this guy's insulating himself from everyone who could possibly tell him anything that he doesn't want to hear. 
And it would be scary. Like I'm trying to think of parallel people like that. It's hard to imagine, but I wouldn't want to go see them. Mm-hmm. And so I think she's a. I think she's naive. I think she's afraid. I think the king is unhinged, and she knows it. Or I don't mm-hmm. unhinged may not be exactly right, but sort of it's amoral a good word, though. and I like unpredictable. That yeah. Yes, unpredictable for sure. And so, like, I fully understand Esther's response, and I think like she's in a relatively secure position. Her livelihood, you know, her life depends on sort of trusting the people around her, mm-hmm. and. There's just a lot to, I mean, what Mordecai has told her, which apparently she had no idea about, is overwhelming. And I think she just, I think she just gets caught in the, like, a moment of disbelief, a moment of fear, a moment of sort of calculating her own situation. Yeah. I don't even really have to try to be empathetic. Like, I'm disappointed with where she comes out here in this moment, but I fully get it. Like I would, I would have done exactly the same thing, I think. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think that's really helpful. And I think, I mean, I think I see Esther at this point in the story. Like I, you know, we talked a little bit before about how though she is in a relatively powerful position, she has, as far as we can tell, mostly just been doing what people have been telling her to do. Yeah. And I don't know that she recognizes that she has any power, even though she she does, you know, she clearly yeah. does being in the palace. She's she's just trying to play by the rules that have been laid out for her. That's exactly right. And and these are the rules. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, and I I don't know. I always read this book sort of like, did she did she even want to be entered in a beauty contest to be the wife to the king of Persia? Like, you, you know, again, like so many stories of women, oh, yeah. like we don't really know what she thought about any of this. This was right. just her uncle decided it was a good idea for her to do it. So her uncle got to decide. Actually, the way the story is told is so fascinating in that chapter two where that the like beauty contest takes place. Is it, it like the plain reading of the text to me is just the king sent people out in like, picked up attractive women and brought them back to the castle. Like none of them had any agency in it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how one reads that. It's probably not important for this particular podcast, but yeah, I think her, she had zero agency in ending up in the position that she's in. Yeah. So if you're not, if you haven't had an experience in the world where you have ever, ever sort of gone, you know, colored outside the lines or trying to, you know, try to figure out how you could do something that is not in the rule book, then yeah, then her answer is just like, I, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do because it would put my life at risk. Yeah. Yeah. I'll add just one other thought here, and mm-hmm. and it's been something that I have often struggled with reading Esther, and I think it's just because we don't get a lot of Esther's background and perspective in the beginning of the story, but this sort of play that Mordecai is making, understandably, you know, to, to plead with a king for her people, like mm-hmm. her people, the Jews. It is a question in my mind the extent to which she identifies with her people generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I, again, like the Greek version of this has a lot more explicitly Jewish piety or, you know, mm-hmm. Jewish stuff. But this, you know, this book, it seems like she's just living in the palace and has really no connection to the Jewish people. So, it, I mean, it's an open question. Certainly she is 
ethnically part of the Jewish people, yeah. but it is, it's not clear to me the extent to which she feels an affinity, which, which Mordecai needs her to feel right now. Yeah. I think that's so important, Amy. And clearly she is able to pass as Persian yeah. or at least mm-hmm. as not Jewish. Yep. And so, and that has served her pretty well so far. And I mean, it raises the issue. Like, I think that's very much on the table. If if you could hide your connection to the vulnerable people, would you take the risk of identifying with the vulnerable people at risk of your own demise, at risk of your own life? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think you're right. She doesn't seem particularly attached to her own people. And I think maybe, you know, even if she were before the fact that she's been married to the king and living in this royal precinct and like that's her whole world now, like it's a highly insulated place. So she doesn't feel any direct connection, I, I would imagine. I, I think that's super important. So she's going to have to risk her life on behalf of a people to whom she doesn't feel connected. Yeah. And that the connection, if when she names it, is going to be risky, put her in a more risky position. Yeah. Right, right, right. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast. But if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to this week's podcast. All right. Let's see what happens next, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. Verse 12. When Mordecai was told what Esther had said, Mordecai had this message delivered to Esther. Do not imagine that you of all the Jews will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. Then Esther sent back this answer to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will observe the same fast. Then I shall go to the king, though it is contrary to the law. And if I am to perish, I shall perish. So Mordecai went about the city and did just as Esther had commanded him. Well, his response was clearly very compelling to her. <laughs> yes. Can, can you try to pull apart some of, I feel like rhetorically, he just hits so many different 
points or perspectives in his response. Can you try to pull out some of the some of what you see in there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the line that I'll, that strikes me, I think it probably strikes you too, is don't think that unlike all the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you're in the palace. Yeah. I mean, that's hitting hard. And, you know, this idea that your privileged position protects you and that you can pretend, like he's the one who told her to pretend she wasn't Jewish in the beginning. And now he's sort of saying, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out somehow or another. I mean, there's something that I think is really powerful about that. Like, it's a little threatening <laughs> for Mordecai. Yeah. Like, this is going to mm-hmm. turn out bad for you. So you got, you're in this thing whether you want to be or not. But I think there's something that's really true about that is some, sometimes it is possible for us to think that our positions of privilege protect us against forces of evil when, in fact, they might insulate us for a moment. But eventually evil is going to evil, you know. And so... Um, whatever you think is insulating you is going to eventually, it's going to come back for you. And so I think Mordecai speaks truth there. And, you know, like the, what he's done is he says, you don't really have any options, right? It's going to, it's going to come back one way or another. Your Jewishness is going to put you in danger one way or another. Your privilege is going to cease to protect you. Mm-hmm. And so you may as well just risk it now when mm-hmm. you can do something instead of holding on to it only to have it taken from you later. It, rhetorically, mm-hmm. that's really powerful. Like it's a, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a rough move to make, I think, but I, but I think it's an important one. Yeah. What do you see in Mordecai's response? I, I absolutely see, you know, the, the point that you drew out so beautifully that you can't separate yourself from this fate. So if right. you're worried about your life being on the line, your life is on the line. Right. Let's get that part over with. Like, right. you know, like you you can't avoid that. It's yeah. happening. I think it's so interesting that he goes from there to help will come to the Jews from another quarter, from another mm-hmm. place. It's just you and your father's household that will perish. So it's like, yeah. in a sense, we don't need you, even though obviously he does need her or he thinks right. he needs her. That's why he's there. I'm not totally sure how to make sense of that rhetorically, yeah. unless it's almost like bitter grapes. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you do what you want. We'll figure out something else if we have to. But I don't know. Do you do something more sophisticated with it than that? No, I, that line is perplexing in a number of ways. And the, the vagueness of relief and rescue will appear from another place. Mm-hmm. Like here is a place where one could import God is faithful to the mm-hmm. Jews and God will protect the Jews. Mm-hmm. But Mordecai yes. doesn't say it that way. He says it in the passive voice. It will arise from another place. And that the 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 word place in Hebrew is makom. And because of this passage, makom is one of the names we oh. use for God. Interesting. Because it's so like, yes, help will come from makom. Yeah. From God, but yes, you're exactly right. This you have to do a little uh, <laughs> fancy footwork to get there. That's not the plain meaning of this text. Yeah, and where he ends up is you think that you're less vulnerable than all the other Jews because of your position, but in fact, you are more vulnerable than all of the other Jews mm. if you don't act. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite know what he means by that, but rhetorically, it's very effective. This yeah. protection that you think you have is actually not a protection. It's a vulnerability. Yeah. 
And I mean, I don't know, like my tendency is to want to read that as if this Haman who is anti-Jewish is really serious, he's, you absolutely know he's going to search out the Jews that are close at hand. If he's willing to search out the Jews at the edges of the empire, he's going to find somebody living in his own yeah. precinct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't quite know what Mor- Mordecai has in mind, but it, but it's effective. You don't have the privilege that you think you have. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder about that, you know, thinking maybe less practically and more, I don't know, theologically, maybe that's mm. not the right word about that. Like this idea that by sep- by choosing to separate yourself from your people, mm. you are making yourself more vulnerable. Like the best thing you can do right now is align yourself with the the well-being of your people. I don't know. I feel like that would that's a very sort of like modern Jewish layer yeah. to sort of import over it, but the idea that y- your our fates are tied and really so like you can do what you want, but you know. I really like that reading Amy, but and where it's pushing me back to is Mordecai is the very one who told Esther not to identify with her people because it that's would right. put her at risk at the beginning of this story. And now he's reversing course and saying you have to identify with your people in order not to be at risk. I don't know, has Mordecai had a change of understanding about how the world works? Or is he just saying what he needs to say in order to get Esther to do what he needs her to do? Right. Or is it that now he is at risk? And so Mm -hmm. he he doesn't, you know, he's like, you need to do this because because I'm at risk? I I don't know. I sometimes read Mordecai as having had a master plan. And it might be giving him too much credit. But Mm -hmm. then what he does is he gets Esther into a position of power then he refuses to bow down to Haman exactly to provoke a response, like to call oh. the anti-Jewishness uh, that is in the empire, to call it out in the into public. But he can't do anything about it once it's out there. So he he needs Esther to do something about it because she's the only one who can. And so wow. it's like a high-risk move that Mordecai has made. That's a risk game, made. yeah. yeah. I, that's not exactly in the text. Yeah, But if you start to ask yourself, like, well, what are Mordecai's motiv- motivations at different points along the way, then you, that's one of the places that you can end up. And so he's, cre- he's created a thing that he cannot solve. Right. But he's also gotten Esther into a position where she can, and she, she, he needs her to do her part, or yeah. else it's going to all go horribly awry for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And that brings me to my favorite part of his whole speech. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were put here just for this. Like maybe this is why your whole life has unfolded this way to put you in this position at this moment. Yeah. I think of this line often in in sort of difficult times that I frankly don't want to live in or don't want to lead through. I like try to imagine that life has prepared me for this moment. And in what way has my life prepared me? And it's a really helpful, like, reorientation to, like, okay, what are the resources that I do have? And what are the powers that I do have for for this moment? I really love that, Amy. And, like, I, I like thinking about it sort of personally. Like, this moment in my life I have come to and how is how am I prepared to be here? I also like to think about it publicly that there are certain moments of crisis Mm -hmm. that are all hands on deck 
And, you know, the the rise of anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness or anti-minority or anti, like, dehum- like the dehumanizing of whatever group of people, like those are all hands on deck situations. And that's what's happening in this text. Mm-hmm. Arguably, that's what's happening in our world today. And so to think about like, okay, well, how has, what position am I in? that I can respond in this situation. I'm not the queen of Persia, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I'm the co-host of Bible Worm. <laughs> right. So what, and what, so, yes, like, what, what do you have? How can I use mm-hmm. my position? And I, mm-hmm. I find that really helpful to think about it in my personal life, but also in my public life. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any guess or any sense of which of these rhetorical avenues worked on Esther? Because we have like, you can't separate yourself from the danger. You're already in danger. We don't need you. (laughs) And (laughs) maybe your life unfolded to put you in this powerful position for a reason. Yeah. Which they don't quite cohere as one argument, but they're powerful in their their own way. Yeah. I don't have any sense of what worked on her. I... I don't know. I don't know, but I think rhetorically, it's a really interesting structure because the first part is, okay, you're afraid of Mm -hmm. what might happen to you, but that thing's going to happen to you anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So Mm -hmm. you've taken away that sort of defensiveness. Like you don't need to worry about your life because your life, I mean, you're in trouble anyway, Mm -hmm. but you can't just leave it. Like you have to make that move because otherwise the the urge to self-protect is very strong you've taken away the urge to self-protect or at least the practicality of it, but you can't just leave it there. So then to say, but here's like, now here's the inspiring move. Mm-hmm. You will, you have a position that really can make a difference and you're in it now, but you may not always be there. Like to me, that's the, it's the, I don't know, it's the, not exactly the stick and the carrot, but it's something like that. The mm-hmm. um, taking away the defenses pointing out the vulnerabilities and then offering this really, I mean, it's really inspiring. Maybe for a moment like this, uh, your whole life has unfolded in this for this purpose. Mm -hmm. Like that's inspiring. Yeah. And so that, that I think take away the fear and then offer a moment of inspiration. I think it's a really lovely structure. And I I think she responds probably to the whole whole thing. No, I think that's right. And I love, as you were thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, the way that he takes away the fear is not to say, the king's not going to kill you. <laughs> yeah, he's going to kill You're you You're going to be fine. I know. The, he, the way he takes it away is like, you can stop worrying about that because that, you know, like, yeah, there's no difference between these two avenues in that way. Yeah. The danger's the same. And I I don't know. I just, I really appreciate when when people are able to sort of talk me down from my anxieties in a way that is not actually comforting. Yeah. But- realistic you know (laughs) like there's there's no point in worrying about whether you created that gigantic problem because it already happened and there's nothing you can do about it so situation is what it is the situation is what it is Mm -hmm. yeah so then esther responds by sort of jumping into action yeah and asking for people to fast on her Mm -hmm. behalf does that, I don't know, does that stir anything up for you, like, religiously or, I don't know, sociologically? I don't know if that's the right word. How do you think about this, like, group fasting that's happening here? 
I mean, we were talking before about how Esther is separated from her people. Maybe mm-hmm. she doesn't feel that connected to them. And here the first thing she does is she asks to be in solidarity with them. So I'm going to do this thing on behalf of my people. I need my people to be with me. So let's all, like, what can, how can we connect? We can connect by doing this eating and, or not eating, by this fasting and not drinking anything. And I think there's also, there's a religious significance to that. I think that by doing this, like be, becoming spiritually prepared, maybe drawing God's attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's not exact. It's not explicit in the text, but I think it's implied in the text. But for me, that move back to the community, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this thing for you, but I need y'all to be with me. That's a really lovely, like, I think she gets it. I, I want to be part of this people and I need this. I need the strength of this people with me. Mm-hmm. The CEB in, inserts the phrase, tell them to give up eating to help me be brave. The Hebrew is a little vaguer about that. It's concerning me or on my behalf or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's to help her be brave in a sense. Like, I don't think that's a, a misunderstanding, but it's, it's not a straight translation. Uh, so the, the bravery is implied, but the connection is very much like they're doing this for Esther mm-hmm. and in connection with Esther. Mm-hmm. How do you read yeah. her response there? Yeah, no, I I love everything that you said. And I love the idea of, you know, I often talk about how to like communal meals can really draw people together in very concrete ways. And and I think communal practices of fasting can, yes. can do that also. And, you know, there there is an idea that religiously, maybe you can get God's attention by fasting because everyone right. is enduring discomfort together and and again, this is, that's not explicitly named here as, as something that's going on. Maybe it is what's going on. But whether it is or not, I think asking the people to, to be with her in this way and be willing to take on some discomfort that she and her, and her maidens will also take on. Right. Yeah, it creates a sense of – it creates a sense that they're doing it together, even though really it's just her that's doing it. She, like, yes. builds a little community for herself. Yeah. It's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just can't, I, I, I know we kind of have already said this, but I just have to underscore again how quickly she has gone from concern about breaking the rules to yeah. if I am to perish, I shall perish. Yeah. And she really has, like she has had a change of heart or a change of mind or a change of understanding. Like she suddenly realizes yeah. the position that she's in. And she's willing to take the risk. Like, it's really, really remarkable. Like, that line, if I am to die, then die I will, is how it's translated in the CB. And, like, I don't know. That's just so brave. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, once once you sort of move past or put down the goal of saving your own life or avoiding pain, avoiding your own pain and suffering— it, it does open up different possibilities. I mean, I don't want to like advocate yeah. that there's something we should give up the goal of saving our lives. Right. But yeah, it seems like once Mordecai gets her to put that down as a, as a primary goal, a, a new world opens up very quickly. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a world of solidarity and a world of connection to the people who are outside the bubble of privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. 
I also love like the last verse here, which is such a kind of a throwaway verse, but Mordecai left where he was and did exactly what Esther had ordered him. And you've been talking about how Mm -hmm. this whole book, Esther's been doing what men told her to do, which is exactly Mm -hmm. right. And Mm -hmm. this verse, it flipped. Like Esther is now in charge of everything, right? Yes. Do exactly what, and you know how the rest of the book goes. Like she figures out how to use her position of closeness to the king in order to work the system to like undo everything that has happened. Like it's just, it's just brilliant. Yeah. Esther has suddenly gone from this kind of naive little girl to this woman who is fully in charge, not just of her self, but now sort of running the show. And and it's just so inspiring to me. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I, I love that you drew that out. And I think that's absolutely right. She, once she gets past this idea that she can keep herself safe, that she's not as interested in coloring inside the lines anymore. And now she's like, okay, I know where the lines are and how can I actually, you know, take some power in this situation knowing that it, it may or may not go well, but she stepped out of the, stepped out of safely following other people's expectations for her. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Okay, I know this is not usually this is not usually the last question, but I want to ask this question and you can decide if this is the last question or not. Okay, okay. How do you read this with Advent? Mm. Okay, so since we're doing things we don't normally do. Yeah. Can I ask you first what your takeaway from the text is? Mm. It just as text and then I'll see what I can connect to Advent. Well, I think I have two sort of related thoughts. And one of them is that that idea that you just drew out that, I mean, especially over the lifespan of women and girls who are socialized mostly in American society and in biblical times, certainly, to stay within the lines. Like, here's your role you should be pleasant. You should not upset people. You should, you know, like, here's what you're supposed to do. And for many people, or maybe I should just say for myself, there, there, there comes a time in life where you start to realize that the risk is actually worth it because you can't, you, you, you can't live that way or the people you love are going to suffer if you continue to live that Mm -hmm. way or, I don't know, but you but you have to be willing to risk things because it will upset the system. It will upset mm-hmm. people. So seeing that echoed here is 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 moving to me. Mm-hmm. But what I was going to say before before you raised that beautiful point was, you know, there's a an author and a speaker named Rabbi Rachel Naomi Remen who asked this question once in one of my very favorite podcasts on being, which is kind of defunct right now, which is a great sadness in my life. But she asked the question, what if you are exactly what is needed? Mm-hmm. How would you respond differently to the world? I feel now that I say that, like that's probably a question I've raised on the podcast before because it's so active yeah. in my mind when I'm in situations when we're in situations where it's so complicated and you don't know what the right pathway is and it seems like someone else must have a better idea and must have a better way forward that is less risky or less messy or someone knows better what they're doing. 
what if we what if we all inhabited the world yeah. thinking that we are needed in the situations in which we find ourselves mm-hmm. and we have something we have we have the power to contribute something based on whatever our life experience or our smarts or our empathies or you know whatever we've got to bring to bear that that is it is called for in the situation and we can stop silencing ourselves and and waiting mm. for something better to come up that you know maybe maybe we are put in this place for a reason and mm-hmm. So that's what this text has me thinking about. I love that, Amy. And I mean, my quick answer is that's what this text has to do with Advent. <laughs> like, mm. ex- like, exactly. Like, amen, sister. That's it, right? Uh, because, you know, Advent is a time of waiting. And Advent is a time of recognizing that all is not right with the world. The world is not as it should be. And... There's the story in Luke's gospel, I think that we read last year about uh, in, in Mary's song where the arrival of Jesus upends the world and it takes the wealthy and brings them down and takes the poor and lifts them up. Like mm. there is an undoing of the world that uh, is necessary and that in the Christian tradition that the arrival of Jesus in the world begins that process. And so it's Advent, the waiting the waiting can be a way of exercising privilege, which is to say, my life's pretty good. Like Jesus is coming to set everything right. So I can just sort of hide here in my safe little bubble where nothing can touch me Mm. and let the world sort of unfold the way that it unfolds. But this text points us to, and I think Advent is trying to point us to, Y'all, this isn't this right now, this moment in which we live is an all hands on deck situation. And there are people who are in danger. There is a world that is at risk. There are vulnerable people who need somebody to act on our behalf. And it's not enough to wait for help to come from another quarter. This is the time to act. And what you're saying, you know, it's not just if you're the queen of Persia, but it's what has life, what has God prepared you to do, prepared me to do in a moment exactly like this one to act on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable in the world. That's what Advent is. Not, it's not a time of passive waiting for mm-hmm. someone else to do something. Mm-hmm. It's, a path, it's a time of active waiting, trying to figure out how we can participate in the arrival of God's kingdom in the world. Mm-hmm. That's what this text is about. And that's what it has to do with Advent. I love that, Bobby. And And as you were wrapping up you, the thought popped into my head also that it's it it is what you can do on behalf of people who are vulnerable and in danger and it is also i think this idea that our fates are tied together like whether or not yes, you yes, identify yes. yourself with the people who are vulnerable like yes. your fate the fate of creation the fate of humanity is tied together on this question of like can we create more just societies can we you know, can we liberate the oppressed? Can, or how much can we do it? You know, it's, it's not yes. just do it to be nice. I mean, that's good. If that's what works that's for exactly you, then right. do it to be nice. Great. But it matters for our own, our own sake too. Yeah. Our own souls. That is so important. Yes. And, you know, 
the other thing that you're making me think about is like there's an abstractness about vulnerability that I think is important, but there is a specificity in this text about mm-hmm. the dehumanization of specific groups of people, in this case, the Jews, that is the danger. And there are other dangers in the world now, but there is still that danger still aimed at Jews, also aimed at whole other groups of people mm-hmm. that are being dehumanized and uh, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how you talk about it, but the, one can understand how those people's very lives are very much at risk in the world in which we currently live. And mm-hmm. I think this text calls us specifically to defend people whose lives are at risk in that way, even if we don't participate, if, even if we don't belong to that group, mm-hmm. precisely because of what you're saying is that our humanity is all tied up and evil is going to evil, and eventually it's going to, whatever privilege you think you're hiding behind, or I think mm-hmm. I'm hiding behind is probably more accurate, eventually that privilege is, is not going to protect us. Yeah. Look at that, Bobby. You tied it to Advent. You tied it to Advent. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> I did not tie it <laughs> I just said Advent. the word Advent real loud. <laughs> Bobby, next week is our last week in the Hebrew Bible. It's, uh, it comes so quickly, doesn't it? I know. So next week we'll be reading the book of Isaiah from chapter 42. And then and then we're going to move on into the Gospels. We are. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I hope you have a great week. And I look forward to reading some more Isaiah with you. Thanks, Amy. See you next time. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Tara Pennington, Matt Sturdivant, and Crystal Clem. I hope you'll come back and learn with us again next week when we will conclude this year's readings from the Hebrew Bible with Isaiah chapter 42. Until then, keep on digging.